I'm John Walker, author of the Stafford Chronicles, and you're listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Disaster Kitchen Crew, assemble! Oh, you're already here. Hi. Hi. Well done. Thanks. Not really. Oh, come on. We need to have some grand entrances sometime. Well, if you're going to have a grand entrance, it's better to actually project. I would never have heard you if I was in the other room. Pretty pathetic, actually. You should work on that. Okay. But good job. Good try. Good try. Go me. Yeah, you can go. Okay. No, wait. Uh, Oh, we haven't done the episode yet. No, we haven't. (laughs) Well, this is a big one. It is. Episode 60. Oh, wow. Episode 60 of the Melting Podcast, and I am your head chef, head honcho, head superhero of the Disaster Kitchen Assemblage, AF Crappen. Also known as Big Head. That's Aaron. Hi! Aaron Kazmark, your grill mistress. Also known for getting those perfect X-Diamond grill marks on... Things. That's her superpower. Oh, I'm good. It's, it's awesome. I'm, 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 I'm really good. Yeah. How are you? I don't think they can hear us or answer back. Right. No, no, actually, if you're listening to this, yell a response as loud as you can and we'll hear you. So a- ask them again. How are you doing? Guilty man? That, that's really great to hear. I, I Thank you. Go guys. Yeah. I'm, awesome. Yeah, you'll have to tell us more about that later. But anyway, for now, we have things to tell you. Like stories. I love telling stories. We've got a main ingredient story. Ooh, I think I know which one this one is. Yeah. Which one? It had a lot of weird words. Yeah, this one does have a lot of weird words, but... It was fun. It, yeah, this, this, this... And poignant and fitting. But we'll let you figure that out for yourselves. Here's the story. Bon appetit. The Orb of Sackmip by David Doc Blue Wimt. Jeffrey McLean stood with his back to his office door, gazing through the picture window across the well-kept lawn at his nation's most recognizable monument. In his left hand, he held his orb of office, absently petting it with his free hand. The orb was actually the skull of Sackmip's last monarch. The skull wore the crown at war in life. Despite being over two centuries old, the orb of office seemed to have not aged a day since it had been preserved. McLean's chief of staff cleared his throat. Mr. President, shall I put the orb away for you, sir? To the best of the older man's knowledge, No previous president had remained in contact with the skull for any longer than they had to, and, thus, the orb of office typically remained in a glass case between ceremonial occasions. Not just yet, Mr. Schmidt. McLean turned to look at his aide. 
That will be all. Yes, sir. Schmidt retreated from the office. He is hungry for power. He always has been. We should fire him. McLean heard from the strong voice in his head. The president stared at the skull thoughtfully. Yes, I think we should. Nearly 300 years ago, Sakmip had been a monarchy in every negative sense of the word. It might have been a fairy tale kingdom at some point, but by the reign of the last king, the small country had been beset by every kind of bigoted and brutal ruler one could imagine for as long as anyone could remember. Finally, encouraged by their neighbors and emboldened by the spreading spirit of democracy, the people of Sakmip rose up and deposed their king, beheading him as a message to any who thought they might fill his despotic shoes. While the commoners of Sakmip planned their first elections, and the former ruling class cowered in hovels and basements, hoping not to be noticed, the mages of Sakmip quietly collected the head and crown of their former king. Working in secret, they stripped it of its flesh and soft bits, and replaced them with layers upon layers of enchantments. Some focused on physical enchantments, affixing the former crown of office permanently to the bone and making both near immune to the effects of time. The necromancers had bound the last king's soul to the skull, a punishment for his mistreatment of his people in general and of mages in specific. And the diviners imbued the soul and skull with all the secrets of Sakmip and enabled the new orb of office to collect the secrets known by each successive bearer for as long as Sakmip remained. A fortnight later, on the eve of the first presidential elections, they presented the Sakmip presidential orb of office to the people, proclaiming it a reminder to each current elected officer of the dangers of claiming too much personal power. They neglected to share the specifics with the populace. The media was quick to point out President McLean's idiosyncratic attachment to his orb of office. His allies praised the practice as a focus on the principles on which Sakmip was founded, while the false media decried it as an obsession. Regardless of which side one found themselves supporting, you could not ignore the fact that the Sakmip presidential orb of office was in every photo of the current president. McLean's staff seemed plagued by inconsistency. Some even went as far as to describe the presidential staff office as having a revolving door. Most of these presidential separations were described as occurring by mutual agreement, but there were a handful that the president's press secretary publicly decried as incompetent, or worse. And no one seemed to comment on the tragic fatal heart attack of his first national security advisor. That tragic heart attack was very much on the mind of the man currently sitting in the chair across the desk from President McLean. Donald Rutledge had been the new national security advisor for five days. Five days, six hours, and twenty minutes, to be more or less exact. Or, to put it another way, long enough to realize that the president had some pretty particular rules that he expected to be obeyed. The first of which was to never mention the orb of office. This was pretty difficult to do, given said orb was sitting on the presidential desk staring at him. Well, not staring exactly, but as close as an incredibly well-preserved skull wearing an ancient crown could accomplish sans fleshy eyeballs. Rutledge cleared his throat. <clears throat> as I was saying, sir, I have reviewed the documents of my predecessor 
and the most recent reports from our security agencies, and I cannot see any support for the internal threat that you have hypothesized. The president smacked his hand on the desktop. Speak clear, man. If I want fancy talk, I will call in one of those ivory tower teachers. We can't find any traitors, sir. Then look harder. They're out there, working against my plans to make this country the best it can be. He cocked his head as if listening to someone. That's all, Donnie. Sir. Rutledge stood and exited the presidential office, more than a little glad to be out of the room. About 15 years ago, a B-grade movie was made on the premise that each president of SACMIP passed a tome of secrets to their successor upon the latter's assumption of office. This was based on a century-old urban legend about the existence of such a black book that held all the information that the leaders of SACMIP couldn't, or wouldn't, share with their people. According to the stories, this included everything from alien visitations from beyond Earth to the locations of powerful mystic artifacts, to the details of the end of the world. This urban legend, in turn, was based on the truth of the Sakmip presidential orb of office. If the writings of the last mage of Sakmip were to be believed, the Skull knew all these things and more, and could impart that knowledge upon the rightful leader of Sakmip. Worse yet... The last mage also said that the end of the world would be signaled when the skull of the last king of Sakmip took control of the president. Unfortunately, very few were aware of the existence of these writings, and fewer still had actually read them. Less than 90 days after taking office, President McLean ordered a raid on the province of Armars deep in the territory of his political opposition. Officially, the raid was an intelligence-gathering raid against Idich extremists embedded in Sakmip. Friendly media sources reported it a highly successful raid, though there was no evidence of Idich involvement nor of meaningful security information. Opposition media sources focused on the civilian deaths, including several children, and the death of a highly honored soldier. The presidential press office spread unsupported rumors about the slain soldier's loyalties and stressed that loss of life was just the cost of creating the best SACMIP the world has ever seen. Donald Rutledge stood quietly as the president praised the operation, declaring it a wild success, beyond expectations. The security advisor had learned pretty quickly that it was best to let the president talk and then try to do damage control once he had left the office. Sure, some kids had been killed, but they weren't real Sakmipians. Better to be rid of them now before they could grow up and cause more trouble. Rutledge was more than a little uncomfortable with the phrase, real Sakmipians. It smacked too much of their monarchist past. Against his better judgment, he spoke up. Mr. President, I understand your enthusiasm, but I think you might want to tone your language down a bit for the media. They don't understand the real you. McLean suddenly became somber. No, they don't, do they? We will have to do something about that. But what? He looked at Rutledge. Or, at least in his direction. This time, Rutledge remained silent. Thank you, Donnie. You've been very helpful. Very helpful. You may go. Rutledge didn't need to be asked twice. Mr. President. Mr. President. Sanjeet Tanir of the Emerald Mirror. 
Aren't you concerned that your travel bans will be seen as reminiscent of those instituted by the kings of Sakmip 200 years ago? The president's face flashed briefly with rage before falling to a more neutral tone as he turned to face the journalist who had shouted the question. First of all, as you can see, I'm quite busy. I think we can all agree that this is not the best time for your question. He glanced over the gathered crowd and smiled as if he had made a joke. An awkward giggle emerged from the audience. But as I have nothing but respect for the press, I will address your question. He straightened his tie and posed for a photo, holding the orb of office like a trophy. My recent moves toward increasing the security of our nation are not bans. He flashed the fingers of his right hand in air quotes. Far from it! I've merely put in place certain guidelines that encourage visitors from nations that have proven themselves to be allies of SACMIP. These new guidelines are nothing like the draconian measures of our noble kings of history. While those wise men had some good ideas, they understood nothing about modern diplomacy. I have been assured that these new measures will not only increase the security of our fair nation, but increase its prosperity as well. The crowd cheered as he finished speaking. He smiled and waved for a few more minutes before leaning over to speak into the ear of his chief of security. Other than a small blurb on an inside page of the Emerald Mirror, no news source reported the disappearance of a Sanjeet Tenier from his apartment a few days later. Ten months into his term, the president of SACMIP had terminated and replaced nearly every member of his staff. McLean was on his third chief of staff and fifth communications director. Highly placed advisors had been isolated and sometimes publicly mocked for disagreeing with the president. Urban unrest racked SACMIP. Violence was on the rise, and each incident seemed to be worse than the previous. Though he decried the events publicly, McLean had used them to increase the security surrounding the presidential mansion. An unnamed source on the presidential staff informed us today that the president has doubled the size of his personal guard over the last three weeks. There is no reason stated for the increase, but along with the increase in its protective staff, anti-terrorism measures are being installed around his personal residence. Security advisor Rutledge was one of the men who found himself outside of President McLean's inner circle. The first he had learned of the security increases were from the news broadcast. Technically speaking, the protection of the president was not under his jurisdiction, but under normal circumstances, he would have been informed. There is no good way to spin this, he grumbled to himself. He looks like he's preparing for war. Neither our allies nor our enemies are going to be comfortable about this. His phone rang. He glanced at the number. It was McLean's personal secretary. Rutledge. He listened. Understood. I can be there in... Glancing at his watch. Forty-five minutes. Thank you. Apparently, the president was also angry about the leak and had called an all-staff meeting. From now on, no one communicates with anyone outside of this building without my permission. President McLean was red-faced and sweating. Rutledge had never seen him this angry. But it was not the president's rage that troubled the security advisor the most. All the chiefs of staff were here, and all of their direct reports. Most of them were young, too young, really, for their jobs. And nearly all of them 
were shaken by the president's tirade. If Rutledge had to guess, they ranged from intimidated to terrified. One young man looked like he wanted to cry. This was bad, but it was also not the most troubling thing. In addition to the staff, there were a number of heavily armed thugs. That's what they were. Rutledge had no better word for them. These were not the close-shaved, well-dressed members of the previous president's security details. They were big, unkempt, and not subtle. Not subtle in the least. And there were easily twice as many, if not three times as many, of them as Rutledge was used to seeing, even with this president. They held their weapons at the ready and sneered at the scared staffers. Sadly, though, there was one thing that troubled Rutledge more. The thing he found most troubling was the damn skull. The orb of office. McLean, even during his most animated rants, cradled the thing in his left arm like a precious child. He even seemed to be listening to it when he paused between tirades. Rutledge racked his brain. He could not recall ever seeing McLean without the orb. Nor could he ever recall a past president even touching the skull after their inauguration. We have to separate the president from that orb. Rutledge spoke matter-of-factly. McLean's first chief of staff, Stuart Allen Schmidt, sat across a table from Rutledge in a private room across town from the presidential mansion. Schmidt stared into his whiskey for a long time. A lot of folks would call you crazy for suggesting that skull is influencing our president, Donald. Some of them would accuse you of treason. Maybe, but that doesn't make me wrong. Like it or not, I'm still the national security advisor, and from where I sit, that thing is the greatest threat to national security that we currently face. Schmidt swirled his glass beneath his nose, inhaling the smoky aroma from the amber liquid. I didn't say you were wrong, but he isn't going to give it up. He took a sip. Or maybe I should say it isn't going to give him up. Not without a fight. Schmidt peered at Rutledge. And this isn't something you can walk away from. The Parliament can pass as many laws, dictates, and who knows what else as they want. But words aren't going to make this problem go away. I know. Rutledge's voice dropped as he repeated himself. I know. It is, therefore, with great sadness that I must declare war on our former allies, the nation of Sadral. Rutledge had been instructed to come to the presidential mansion for an important announcement and was given a seat on the dais behind the podium where President McLean was now speaking. During the last five minutes, the president had alleged that the military Sadral had been conspiring with the rebels of Mapati to attack Sakmip. He had provided no evidence and no sources. I promise you, the loyal citizens of Sakmip, that this threat will not go unanswered. The world has, for too long, seen our nation as weak, pliant. Starting today, they will see how powerful Sakmip really is. Cheers echoed off the walls of the presidential mansion as he stepped away from the podium. Donald Rutledge was too stunned to speak. 
He merely watched the president approach. Donnie, I want to thank you for all your hard work. But now that we are at war, your services are no longer needed. Goodbye. The former security advisor watched in silence as the president was escorted inside. Then he was approached by two armed security personnel. He recognized them from the staff. He stood, hands raised, palms out. I get it. Time to go. I'll find my own way out. Rutledge was a little surprised that his car didn't explode when he tried to start it. Relax. He chided himself. You've watched too many political thrillers. He tried to get Schmidt on the phone. No answer. Coincidence. He murmured as he pulled onto the freeway. Donald poured himself a double when he got home, not certain if the drink was mourning his job loss or celebrating it. He turned on the television and settled into his favorite chair. Finally, SACMIP political insider Stuart Allen Schmidt was found dead today, apparent victim of suicide. As you may recall, Schmidt was the first staffer fired from the McLean cabinet. Rutledge flipped the television back off. The former security advisor spent the next three months in hiding. He moved often, changing pseudonyms more often than he changed his clothes. There were a lot of rumors about the orb of Sakmip, most that any sane man would have considered urban legend at best, but he was chasing them all down. Conspiracy websites led him to supposed experts. Those experts sent him in search of lost archives. He mastered all manner of secret handshake and ciphered messaging. And in the end, he was convinced the rumors were true. The last king of Sakmip lived on through the skull of Sakmip, and now, it seemed, also through President McLean. With each passing week, more resources were funneled toward the war with Sadral. Nations were lining up on either side. Former enemies joining Sakmip former allies supporting Sadral. Soon, it seemed, the whole world would be at war. On the eve of the winter solstice, Donald Rutledge found himself in ancient tunnels beneath the capital city of Sakmip. As far as he could tell, these catacombs had been forgotten centuries ago. Several times he had to stop to clear an area where the tunnels had collapsed with age, or worse yet, reroute. He needed to reach the president before midnight. If his research was accurate, this would be his best chance in the next six months to separate the orb from its host. That's how he had started to think of McLean. A host for a parasite. It made him sad to think that he had once respected the man. And now? Rutledge wondered if anything of the old McLean still existed. Rutledge glanced at his smartwatch. Twenty minutes left and maybe a hundred feet to the basement entrance of the mansion. He was going to make it. Ninety feet left. He kept pushing forward. Eighty feet. There was a sound up ahead. Donald stopped and listened. Nothing. Must have been an animal or the building settling. Seventy feet left. Sixty. Was that a glow? Rutledge slowed his pace, watching and listening. Fifty feet left. Forty feet. Come along now, Donnie. 
Rutledge froze at the sound of the president's voice. Let's get this over with. I have other business to attend to. His hand shoved deep into his coat pocket, the former security advisor pushed forward. President McLean, or should I say, your majesty. The other man chuckled. I knew you were a smart one. Not smart enough to realize that I would know about these tunnels, but smart enough to figure out what was really going on. I should have let you go sooner. But honestly, I enjoyed your company. So, what's next? Oh, I think you know. I declare martial law, suspend elections indefinitely, and by the time this war ends, I will be firmly ensconced as the sovereign monarch once more. And when McLean's body wears out? He laughed. <laughs> That's the best part of it! Those wizards gave me a real gift! I will just name another weak-willed pawn as my successor. Someone younger and more handsome, I think. And when they run out, another and another, each a shell for me to continue my eternal reign. And when I'm dead, there will be no one to stop you? There are some other loose ends to clean up, but more or less, that's the short-term plan. I could run, disappear, again. Not likely. I had military forces move into the tunnels to block your exit shortly after you entered. Are you certain about that? Rutledge smiled grimly. Yes, you can see their lights behind you now. Yep, there they are. And your own guard behind you. McLean glanced back. I told you to wait inside. The mercenaries continued to advance. What? What's going on? I asked you if you were sure about what your forces were here to do. Rutledge pulled a radio transmitter out of his pocket, his thumb firmly on the send button. I knew you could spin anything I released to the public, but I wagered that enough folks in the military would not take kindly to a new age of corrupt dictatorship when I transmitted this conversation directly to their channels. The former security advisor stepped out of the way of the advancing men. It's a shame that these terrorists found you unguarded during your nightly rounds of the mansion. It took several weeks, but after an appropriate time of mourning, Donald Rutledge found himself installed as interim president of SACMIP. Immediately after the ceremony, he had the orb placed in the case it had occupied for some many presidents before him. It would take some time to restore full peace with their former allies, but Rutledge knew he would never get any credit for bringing his homeland back from the greatest threat it had faced in centuries. But, he mused, that was the point. The president was the servant of the people, not the other way around. <laughs> I, I totally didn't get the the satire and pol <laughs> pol political political. I have words. <laughs> I got it. Good for you. It was awesome. Well, I'm going to ponder over this a little bit more. Let's let's do a promo, and I'll see if I can kind of figure out some of the subtext. Percolate a bit. Yeah. Okay. Double. I'm going to run this through my skull. You don't have a skull. Or, or bones. bones.
<laughs> Promo <laughs> habit. The most powerful men in the world. The horrors created by mad science. Tentacle of monstrosities from beyond the veil. The elder gods themselves. None of these evils can keep occult consulting detective Fresh or St. Clair from the case. Whether his clients come from the high-rises of Manhattan or the depths of the Undercity, Esho won't stop until the case is solved. From the mind of Scott Roche comes the casebook of Esho St. Clair, featuring two complete tales of the fearless detective and his stalwart companions as they face off against the terrors beyond the understanding of normal men. Find out more at www.scottroche.com or look for the casebook of Eshoo St. Clair at your favorite online booksellers. The master, he commands it. So? So? Do you get the story now? Yeah. Is it because I explained it to you during the promo? Shh. No, I figured it out all on my own. Donnie. Moving Moving right along. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm hungry. Well, it's a good thing we're in the kitchen. Yeah, but I'm I'm snackish. I don't want to take the time to actually cook a proper meal. I'd rather have something that's ready in like five minutes. So like a short order? Yeah, that'd be great. So you'll need a cook for that? Yes. A short order cook? Uh Uh-huh. Wait, I see what you did there. I think it might be time to get the dish boy a little bit of cross-job training. (laughs) Order up. Hi, everybody. Hi. Dr. Head Chef? Dr. Head Chef. No. You've already got a white coat. You don't need a different white coat to put over your other white coat. Can I get like a fancy hat to put no. over my, my chef's tongue? No. Aww. Closest thing we can get is tomato stains. <laughs> well, so what are we here for? We're here for Theo to do a little cooking for us. Oh no. We're taking him out of the sink and into the oven. Fire? Yes, out of the sink and into the oven. I yeah. like that one. Yeah. Or how about how, uh, from in front of the sink and to in front of the oven? I don't clean with fire. <laughs> For a very good reason, dear. (laughs) My fire be cleansed! We are here for a short order cook segment. And it's Theo's turn. Yay! It's not me! The way these work is one of you lovely listeners has emailed a challenge for Theo. Subject line, short order cook, Theo. And inside this email is a prompt that he has not seen. Mm-hmm. He will have a grand total of five minutes to plan and tell a story. He can use up to one minute of it to plan. <laughs> I have a timer on my wrist. I will start the clock as soon as I read him the prompt. Are you ready? As ready as I can manage. All right, Theo. Your prompt is, AF has wandered off talking about voices in his head, and Aaron is talking about living in a fairy tale. What are the next couple of days like? Timer started. <laughs> After listening to what these prompts did to you and me. Uh, oh, by the way, this is from Jason Goodman. He, he planned this. Oh, gosh. 
So, so you've wandered off with voices in your head, mm-hmm. and and Erin is pretending she's living in a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Basically, our prompts. Yeah. Next few days. Okay. <laughs> He's biting his lip. It's so cute. Oh, there's the prom. <laughs> He's plotting. Silence. I'm creating. Plotting or plodding? Plot plotting. Plot plotting. Plotty plot. Plot plot. You have 15 seconds left to plan, Theo. Story time actually goes quickly. <sighs> yeah, it does. You ready? Okay. Seven days of madness. <laughs> Even as a title. Sunday morning. I wake up and I get the kids ready for the day as normal. Lachlan is still asleep and children are awake and I'm wondering um, why Gus's car is parked out in the front lawn. Um, normally he doesn't show up until later in the morning or the afternoon. So I go about by business, assuming that everything is okay. Well, as after we finish breakfast, um, Lachlan stirs and wakes up. So I go get him and I find AF lying in the floor, talking to the ceiling with a finger in his ear as if he has a headset on. And he's an air traffic controller talking to a pilot. I'm very confused at this point, so I pick up Lachlan and I go about my day. Don't disturb the disturbed. So, at this point, after I leave Lachlan's room, I go and wake up Erin, who I like to let her sleep in because, you know, it's a nice thing to do. However, she refuses to wake up, and the only way I can get her to um, awaken is to give her a kiss. At which point she gets up, greets the day by throwing up the blinds and starts singing to the to the creatures outside our window. I figure she got a lot of very solid rest, and so I let her go about her business. <laughs> As the day progresses, uh, Gus wanders out into the living room and pretends to perform a shamanic dance <laughs> with colored cardboard paper in the middle of the floor and believes it's a fire. Speaking to the animal spirits and and asking for wisdom. Aaron is also joining in, thinking that this is a playful game, <laughs> and invites the birds to join. The children are very amused by this and join in as well. I take pictures for posterity. Monday. The series continues. Gus has wandered down the street. I don't know when he'll be back. But he has friends. We just can't see them. Aaron has somehow enlisted a squirrel to clean dishes. I have named him Chitters. The girls are doing their chores and they're very excited. Tuesday. I come home from work and see Gus out on the front lawn making circles with the car. Apparently it's NASCAR season. Erin has set up her room in pink and is calling for her prince. She thinks she's in a tower about 50 feet up and I have to come rescue her. (laughs) The children don't go to sleep that night. They're just too excited. Wednesday through Friday is much of the same. We now have a veterinary school. And the girls have decided they all want to be doctors. 
as as well as anything else that Gus happens to talk about at the time. Um, <laughs> Gus has been scooting around the floor talking to Houston. They have a problem. <laughs> Saturday, everyone's gone. The house is pristinely clean, and no one is to be found. I'm alone. Thank God. <laughs> With 30 seconds left. (laughs) I think he wins. That got five from me. Five spoons, absolutely. Dang, dude. Well done, sir. You are my prince. You must come rescue me. I was worried you were going to say that you weren't my prince and that I was going for somebody else. That wouldn't happen. The end. Okay, so we've had our, our, our new short order cook serve up a dish. Mm-hmm. There were hash browns involved. I was surprised. Usually. It's, it's Theo. He's good at that. They're always perfectly round, and sometimes he can even get them heart-shaped. I don't know how he does that. Love. Love. <laughs> I got you on that one. Okay. But anyway, that's that's not important. What is important is now we need to critique. Mm-hmm. We've had a main ingredient from crispy. a short order cook, and now we need a food critic. You weren't talking about the hash browns. No, I wasn't talking about the hash browns. I gotcha. I was talking about one of the books you have recently devoured that you need to tell people about. One of the ones that I ate or one of the ones that I read? If you're eating books, you really need to redo your budgeting because food is cheaper. Fiber. Oh, sweetie baby, honey. All right, well, why don't we distract you from being an idiot for a little while by reminding people that you're actually smart? Okay. And, and you read things and have things to say about it. Okay. Okay. Let, let, let's do this. All right, well, I am here with our head chef, A.F. Grappin. As always. <laughs> no, you weren't here for the last episode. There was a... Oh. Ha, 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 I win. Anyway, and we are here to do a food critic segment. Oh, hooray. It's now, been a while. Now, now tell me, what offering are we going to be critiquing today? I will be critiquing A Natural History of Dragons, a memoir by Lady Trent, by, uh, by Marie Brennan. That sounds interesting. It really was. It's a it's a book that's actually been on my to-read list for a couple of years now since I first discovered it. And let me just say right off the bat that as soon as I finished it, I got the other four books in the series. That's pretty high praise there. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. So what is the genre of this book? It is definitely fantasy. It is a fantasy memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, Hence the title. Yes. And it is the memoir of Lady Isabella Trent. Mm-hmm. who is in a world that is very strongly parallel to ours. Okay. In roughly late 1800s, early 1900s, that kind of a period. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a, a baron's daughter, mm-hmm. the only girl out of a bunch of boys, mm-hmm. and her interests don't necessarily fall into what is right and proper for a lady of her station. Okay. She's very interested in science. Ooh. Particularly anatomy mm-hmm. of dragons. 
She's so interested in dragons. Gasp, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) So it goes through some of her early childhood, the first things that caught her attention um, being a... I'm betting it was a dragon. No. Yes and no. (laughs) It was a sparkling, which she thinks might be some sort of a draconic cousin. Mm-hmm. But I take them as kind of like a, it's a small insect, maybe like an inch, two inches long, mm-hmm. but they can be preserved in vinegar. And so she catches them and studies them. But the first thing that really gets her into anatomy is dissecting a dove in secret and getting in trouble for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it goes through, you know, like I said, her initial interests as a child, which can be dismissed, but getting into her middle teen years, mm-hmm. not so easily ignored anymore. This is definitely not just a phase. Mm-mm. And then into trying to marry her off to someone who will actually appreciate her. Which, spoiler alert, does happen. <gasps> and she ends up, long story short, going on a uh, journey with her new husband, Jacob. Mm-hmm. And a few other people to study the mountain dragons of a... Cat. Of a not-too-near-but-not-too-distant country. All right. So what age range would you recommend this for? Or is it geared towards? Uh, I would say young adults can definitely handle it. Um, maybe some more mature middle grade, because there are... It's, it, there's nothing explicit mm-hmm. other than, you know, mention of what could potentially happen. Like, say, if she gets kidnapped by bandits or something like that. Just... Fears. It's it's very mm-hmm. real, but she's real she, but tame. It is. She's a lady, mm-hmm. but she's also very realistic and pragmatic. Okay. Um, there is a little bit of gore and everything because they do go into skinning part of a dragon, the wings, because she becomes um, some of the years where she was beaten down a little bit for her interests. She took up drawing, which is appropriate for a lady, uh-huh. and so she becomes the sketch artist. For the anatomy, uh, for the anatomical drawings of dragons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, killing a dragon and then before it rots away, because they rot away very quickly, which is why we don't have a lot of information on this. Okay. Um, so, you know, within those first few hours, have to draw, sketch one wing while the ne- other one is being skinned to get musculatures and bone and everything. Just yep. All of this. And it's, it's very scientific, but it's written in first person. It is written like it is a memoir. This is one of those books where I feel like I'm not reading a fiction book. I am reading a... Someone's memories. I'm, I'm reading a historical memoir from another world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel false to me. I have to keep reminding myself that Marie Brennan wrote it and not Lady Trent herself. <laughs> That's good. So you would say then that the characters were believable. Absolutely. Isabella is so real in, in every single way. And the people that surround her and just the reality of her relationships... I'm um, going to go through the other four books, just, just touch on them in brief. You know, there are characters that she meets in books two and three that after her journey to the country, she never sees them again. And she has that sorrow for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just fantastic. What about pacing? How did you feel the plot moved along? And These books drive themselves very well. There's, you know, the, I mean, there are some things that do feel a little wandery plot-wise, and then all of a sudden you realize, 
this was important. She left this in because it is important. It's not one of those mundane, this just happened to happen. No. Everything is in its place. She has made a coherent story. Cool. Very good. So, on our rating system of zero to five spoons, Mm -hmm. how many spoons would you give this? I would give a Natural History of Dragons a full five spoons. Wow. And I will carry those five spoons over to the rest of the series as well. That's That's pretty big. It it is. And for those of you who do audiobooks, I highly recommend the audio version. Yeah. um, I believe, and I hope I'm not wrong, the narrator's name, I believe, was Kate Redding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Her last name is Reading. (laughs) Redding. Ha, 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 ha. I don't know if I will be able to listen to her read anything else because because she is Lady Tread. She's Isabella. She, she personifies like her. She just she brought her to life. Very nice. Yes. So absolutely wonderful. You can pick up a natural a natural history of dragons. I don't well know. As, I like an astral history. That that was a nice little as blunder. Well as the Tropic of Serpents, Labyrinth of Drakes, In the Sanctuary of Wings, and I know I'm missing one, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. But there are five of them. It's number three. I can't remember the title of apparently. <laughs> um, Journey of the Basilisk, maybe. Something like that. Anyway, <laughs> there's five books. Go read them all. Get them on Amazon. Get them on Audible. Well done. I'm giving two thumbs up and five spoons. <sighs> that was a full banquet. I'm stuffed. I guess it is probably about time to... Have a nightcap and call it quits, huh? I like nightcaps. I do too. They help me sleep. NyQuil helps me sleep. I do not condone using NyQuil as a sleep aid. <laughs> Hashtag not doctors. Hashtag not doctors. <laughs> Hashtag disaster kitchen. Hashtag bad medical advice. Hashtag don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what should they hashtag do do? <laughs> After the meal we just served them. <laughs> Do you really have to ask? Hashtag doo-doo. Anyway. <laughs> How about if they go to, say, patreon.com slash afgrappin'? They could do that. What could they do there besides hash doo-doo? What could they hashtag doo-doo there? Money. <laughs> <laughs> we lost it. <laughs> I blame mother. I am mother. <laughs> anyway, what can they... Hashtag doo-doo there. They can... No, no. don't answer your own question. <laughs> ass hat. Hashtag ass You hat. pants. <laughs> they can become patrons oh. of us. And what do patrons do? Give us money. And then we give them stuff. We do. Sometimes they get access to episodes early. They get Mm -hmm. swag. Eventually, if we get enough patrons and get enough money coming in, we can start to pay some of our submissions. That would be great. That's the dream. It's become a paying market. Yeah. And we can't do that without your help. I'm not made of money. I'm made of words. And yeah, I'm made of meat. (laughs) Organic stuff. No. But yeah, so as little as a dollar an episode really helps us out. Um, you can also go to shop.spreadshirt.com slash themeltingpodcast. Well done. You remembered it. I always remember it. Right. And there you can purchase your own swag outside of Patreon, like buttons with our illustrious faces on them. Or aprons with our illustrious faces on them. 
Or coffee mugs. With our illustrious faces on them. We could keep going. Yeah, we could put our faces on just about anything. And there, there are things that don't have our faces on them, like aprons that say Lexiconosaur. Yeah. Yeah. And so go get yourself some awesomeness. You can do that. And then while you're on the internet, go to iTunes. That's not what I thought you were going to say, and I'm so glad you didn't say what I thought you were going to say. You're welcome. I thought you were going to say, look up a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. Mine was perfect. You don't need a new one. Okay. Is it a five-star recipe? Five spoon. Ah! But we would like five stars. Yes. Yes. On, on iTunes. On iTunes. Not on our chocolate co- cookies. No. Go, go to iTunes. <laughs> find the Melting Podcast in the, in the uh, iTunes store. Give us stars. Give us a review. Nice words are nice. Increases our visibility. Nice words are nice. You're a writer. <laughs> I am not a speaker. Not today. <laughs> I am not speaker. You is not speak. I is no speaky. I do for speak. Uh, I do talk. Hashtag doo-doo. Yeah. Anyway, how about, uh, how about not? Okay. <laughs> how about they send us words? They can send us words. They can send us uh, Stoke the Fire stories. Yes, they Up can. Up to 1,500 words based on one of our prompts. Prompt number 14. Don't say it. Is now closed. You said it. They have to close sometime, Erin. It's okay. Okay. It's okay. Are you sure? Yes. Yeah? Because we'll be replacing it. Ooh! But first... Prompt, I like new things. We'll, we'll have a new prompt in just a minute, but first, prompt number 15. Yes. There is an expiration date for your birth certificate. It's only a few days away. Dun dun dun. There are three more months of that one. You've got time. Use it. Please? And now introducing prompt number 16. The sounds on top of the roof suddenly stopped. Ooh. That's ominous. I like that, because you, you always think, oh, there's something up there. What happens when it stops? Yeah. So, 1,500 words or fewer. I, I want I want to write that one. I, I think I might need to whip one out for that. All right. So, they're armed with all of their information of, of what they can do and how they can do things. So, you know what they should do now? Well, you know, I mean... This is all a show of give and take. We gave them stuff, now they give us stuff. So they should send us stuff. They can send us stuff. And what do we do with it? Produce it in audio. And? Mess up while doing it. And we'll use it to feed the masses. I, wait, I can do that. Say no, it again. No. Oh. It's, it's over. It's done. You lose. You get nothing. Good day, sir. Good day to you, too. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff.